Hello and welcome back to Podcasting as Practice. I'm David, my pronouns are he and him. I'm Jamie, my pronouns are he and him. I'm Rob, mine are he and him. And I'm Alistair, my pronouns are also he and him. And joining us tonight is the wonderful Matt Zard Cousins. Good evening. My pronouns are also he and him. And I'm also the co-founder of Gambam, blocking software, and director of Cleanup Gambling, as well as being the former spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn, which I'm, well, I need to stop dining out on that because that was about six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Oh, dear. Um, I, that's, that's a fucking hell of a resume for the start of this. Usually it's, um, we, we like them on Twitter and that's, that's the only qualification somebody has. So, uh, cool. <laughs> Well, don't worry. Matt also fits the bill on that front. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not not to take away from that section of it as well. Yeah, and um, most importantly, we like him. Exactly. <laughs> um, Very kind. Rob, what what misery and fucking hell do you have for me on this overly hot day? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, uh, FYI, this is uh, the start of uh, of of hot recording season. So uh, this is episode one of Heat Madness, just for yeah, David starting, this time. Starting entirely localised around David. It's, it's so <laughs> fucked up. Why is it here? The rest of Scotland is never like this. It's fucked up. Because God's up there fucking with James and you're just collateral damage. <laughs> <laughs> There's ants in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, they'll be mad when they hear this part. Uh, <laughs> Someone kicked a football at the moon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, now, obviously, like uh, we we brought Matt on because the new white paper on gambling in the UK is out, so that's going to be our main topic for later. But first, uh, David, I have good news for you, uh, and really for everybody on this podcast. Uh, we can all go home. Uh, we've we've been replaced. Um, Bye. It's, it's <laughs> yeah comrade tts over to you is this gonna be about that absolutely fucking like dumb fucker with his like what if bill gates and uh socrates fucking... yes all right okay, oh god well, I, was, I was gonna say plato <laughs> but what if, what if those two cunts had a conversation in a really bad civ 3 cutscene? as here you go <laughs> ah my dear friend bill i see you have brought a device with you today what purpose does it serve greetings socrates this is a laptop, a marvel of modern technology. It harbors an artificial intelligence that can revolutionize heuristic education. Interesting. Imagine a world where students learn at their own pace, guided by a tireless tutor that never errs. Is this the MacBook you often refer to? No, no, no. This is a Surface. You just need to remember that Surface. Fascinating. But tell me, what is the essence of this artificial intelligence you speak of? It is a machine that can learn and reason built wow. upon vast amounts of data and complex algorithms. It imitates human thought processes to provide tailored learning experiences. I sense a shadow over this marvel, a hidden danger lurking within. Uh-huh. Well, uh-huh. I have approximate knowledge of many things. Can you, um, can you get a clip of that fucking bit where you just went, interesting? <laughs> I feel like that would come in handy. If I can just have a just have a button with that on for me tonight, like, so I don't have to take part. <laughs> oh, and who says this technology isn't for everyone? I've got a headache, and that hurt less. <laughs> oh man, it's going to be incredible. Just uh, every five minutes, that podcast has got to interrupt itself with like the Wikipedia begging message saying, "Like, can you give five pounds?" <laughs> 
<laughs> Podcasting is practice, but everyone's the fucking like, Jimmy Wales or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> oh. uh, but yeah, just just more more good news from the front of AI, which everybody still calls AI, and I know that this podcast does not believe that it is AI, but you know. We, I look very much to, to to being replaced, and I think certainly everybody who's on our who's on our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash praxiscast, will very much like appreciate all of us. Could do you reckon we could just like feed in our what is it two hundred and four odd episodes and just like retire at this point? No. <laughs> yeah, but could we try? I mean, Interesting. You try whatever you want, Matt. Like. <laughs> Yeah, we feed we feed in every single um, bunch of show notes that we've ever made, and it just comes up comes back with a bunch of the cat picture. Comes back with an episode <laughs> of Seinfeld that some prick on Twitter wrote for clout. No, but remember we, we did this thing where we, we fed a bunch of fucking Starmer speeches into one of those fucking things, and it just kept coming back with like actual policies and sounding like it gave a fuck. So quite clearly, we'll be outed immediately as just like, frauds. Yeah, I thought that was already out. Well. Frauds of the, the 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 shit characters that we are, um, but no, like that that was that was dead like actually like good and had some decent policies and seemed to care and didn't have any qualms about anything. Um, the Keir Starmer that centrists believe exists. Yeah, yeah. So this this podcast would just be us, but sounding like upbeat and hopeful for the future, and would, would be fucked up. <laughs> Can't be having that. No, exactly. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a brand to maintain. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, do do you see a bright future for uh, what was it? Is what is again Brit GPT? Maybe uh, Matt, do, is that going to be uh, the thing that will automatically solve all our problems in the future? Brit GPT. I, I, apparently, that's yeah. We we need to do a basically. This is the solution, right? This is how we're going to compete in the new world. We're going to have our own version of G, Brit GPT. I think anything with Brit as a suffix is always doomed to fail in the tech space yep. brick box um yeah they they learned that nfts and bitcoin were a thing that exists they were like well boy gotta get on this bad wagon because uh, everyone seems to be talking about it aren't brick box doing really well selling spitting image to the, the americans i assume <laughs> that's a guaranteed money spinner <laughs> Uh, anyway in other british uh good news um so remember like we talked about a bit last week remember how like the cost of living cost of living was exploding and like food prices are up are up by like about 20 percent. i love, you, I think I it's love 19... your use of the word remember there as if i'm in a position to forget <laughs> well i think jamie with you quite frankly anything's possible um <laughs> so food prices are I'm gonna come over to switzerland and steal your fucking house mate I already, I, I literally send you food packages. I don't think I'm in a position to be robbed. Uh, but yeah, so like food prices are up. I think it's about nineteen point two percent as of today. But don't worry about True. it. Seems fine. I have good news. Uh, this the Tory government has learned of these facts and is distraught on your behalf. So they are here to help. Oh, good. I love it when a Tory government intervenes in my life because it always ends well. Mm. <laughs> so this was first reported by The Telegraph uh, as Rishi Sunak will ask stores to cap basic food prices. Ask. Yes. Ask. Oh, yeah, because it's, uh, it's voluntary, isn't it? It is voluntary. That's the good part about it. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. <laughs> Capitalist. Please, would you like to reduce your profits slightly? <laughs> <laughs> 
Isn't voluntary price caps, isn't that just market forces? I mean, I don't know. Pretty much, yes. It's basically basically how you can, yeah, how much you can get away with charging is a voluntary sort of cap. I don't, I don't, I, the thing that was best about this story, I thought was the, uh, the replies to the, to the tweet that the Telegraph put out, which were basically a load of libertarian aligned undergrads just tearing their hair out saying we're heading for, for communism. So I thought that was quite, yeah, it was quite enjoyable. Oh yeah, I remember that 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 we were already like that we were on the on the road to communism because somebody's asked to do a voluntary thing which they simply will not do. It's yeah. <laughs> it's the thought that counts, though, Rob. Yeah, that's true. And it's the thin end of the wedge. Do you know what I mean? The libertarians are, are ang- angry about this because, like, you have price controls on bread. What's next? Price controls on the age of consent. They're all just really desperate to to own us by posting that picture of the the Cuban supermarket where all the products look the same. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Look at these well priced products. Oh no. This is a photo of a London supermarket where there's like nothing there but like cheese that's too expensive to steal. Yeah. (laughs) That that was I think I want to say that was. think it was Seb Payne. No, it was Tom Hardwood or Darren Grimes, one of those two idiots, during the COVID crisis. Tom like Hardwood. they were post. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> that's merely a spurious allegation. We can, <laughs> we can, not confirm or deny that. We've gene spliced Tom Hardy and Tom Hardwood. <laughs> um. No, he was posting some picture. It was in the minute, like at the start of COVID, when everybody was like panic buying food and toilet paper, and he took a picture of an actual UK supermarket inside it with like all the shelves bare, and then said, "If we'd elected Jeremy Corbyn, this is this is what we would have had." And I'm like, yeah, you're standing in the actual empty supermarket under capitalism, and yet somehow it this is all now Jeremy Corbyn's fault or something. It was truly incredible stuff. I mean, this is a breed of people that when they stub their toe, they cry out his name. So, like, it's not really much of a surprise, is it? Yeah, if anything, the only problem with that tweet was if. <laughs> so, uh, of course, the, the I think this was like the association, like the lobby organization of like the major supermarkets uh, immediately said, look, this is, we might consider doing something about along these lines, but won't somebody think of the, please think of the poor corner shops who can't compete with us on price level. So if you implement this, like the noble corner shop is going to die. <laughs> okay, but uh, what about the actual people that are going to die? They're not as important as small business owners. <laughs> yeah. have, you, have you considered that a corner shop owner also needs to consume food to survive, Alistair? Wow, there's a lot to think about there. Hmm. So basically, the, the the reason they're thinking about doing this, apart from, you know, people need to eat and are going hungry, is that um, this is not like entirely dissimilar to some measures that that the French actually did, as well as the Greeks and the Spanish. Uh, because basically over there, they've said that like a wide range of like basically supermarket, uh, you know, own brand staples um, would be, this is in France, they are to be mandatorily priced at the lowest possible level, which basically means you can, you know, the supermarket can charge for like production and shipping costs, but they can't charge a profit on it. And the government is also not reimbursing French supermarkets. So they are expected to lead like hundreds of millions uh, of losses. So it's like you can just do these things if you want, like even under Emmanuel Macron, like not, you know, the greatest example of, uh, you know, communism in the world. Uh, you know, you can just do this stuff if you put your mind to it. It's not it's not actually impossible. Are the, um, are the French still riot? 
I don't think they ever stop, Jamie, to be fair. Yeah, that, like, full credit. credit. On yeah. That front. <laughs> mm. I mean, I haven't heard it for uh, about it uh, on the news for a while, because that was over yeah, raising the pension uh, age. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Haven't seen so, anything like they've obviously been before. converted to the correct ideological thought of Marxism, Jupiterianism. So, like, it's probably fine. <laughs> no, no, David. Like, the, what we what we failed to what Marx failed to consider was that in order to usher in uh, the revolution, you need to elect the most annoying guy possible, and then everything just falls into place as everyone is sick of his shit. I don't like that because you've implied that I might be counter revolutionary. <laughs> David is pulling into a Finland station against his will and saying it's hot here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so basically, the the supermarkets are already like briefing um, that, that that they don't have the profit margins necessary to like make some staples slightly oh, cheaper. Get the fuck out of here! <laughs> <laughs> they were the only things open in COVID. I mean, yeah. they're the only, they, they, their profits were not affected whatsoever from the pandemic. I mean, that is, everyone's got to pay and a price, right? Haven't various supermarkets' profits like doubled between yep. this year and like two years ago? They have. I think it's time we started investing in Tesco shares. There's really no <laughs> other way to go about it, I'm afraid. I head actually hitting you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I lost my game. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, we, you know, you say this, but I had a quick look at, um, you know, some of the profit margins of the major supermarkets just to check how how impoverished they really were. And like Tesco is right. They only made uh, one and a half billion this year, down from two and a half billion last year. This oh, is according the to their own accounts. Bands. Well, I mean, just to just to follow up on your 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 uh, your solution thesis of uh, doing something about the shareholders, um, they also did a one billion uh, pound stock uh, buyback to juice the price, which is you know not at all a scam thing. It's something that you can do quite legally uh, in in, <laughs> in most countries. So you know they did make two and a half billion. I wonder if uh, stock buybacks come under the same category that you put your profits in. Weird. This spreadsheet hmm. seems to say yes, but uh, what do I know? <laughs> Odd. They're just a small bean retailer. Like, just leave them. <laughs> Other small bean retailers include Asda, which made uh, £886 million, and Sainsbury's, which made uh, two-thirds of a billion, so £667 million. <laughs> so, you know, they, they can't... They, you can't ask these people to, like, take 10p off, like, you know, the, the Tesco basic loaf of bread or anything like that tesco value sorry no you should fucking demand <laughs> i mean to be fair like it's not just like that these people are massively profiteering there are real costs like running through the system but that's mainly like energy costs and supply chains so like uh farming the price of food is incredibly related to the price of energy you know due to the farming systems we have uh so as long as the energy prices are high or like were high in the past you're going to have very high food prices so I feel like rob's about to sneak in a, talk, uh, a little chat about gas prices again <laughs> well, uh, i've got a solution for high energy prices that if anyone wants to hear it very of similar course. to the previous solution i've always <laughs> If only there was some sort of like national organization that would have the powers to do something about all of this. Oh, oh well. well, David, I'm glad yeah. you asked. Uh, I want the government because... form guillotine club. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked, David. Not specifically in relation to the food crisis, because that would be too practical, but uh, Labour has a plan for things uh, to, to mm. get the growth back going, and I assume that somehow Ooh. that's going to help you with your grocery bill. I thought they were calling things missions these days. 
I, this is one of their five missions. So last week was, uh, okay. this is the old message grid. Uh, so last week we had the uh, AI infestation of the uh, NHS. I, I presume that Socrates will have a word or two to say about that too. Um, and this week it's uh, it was time for yeah, Rachel train, Reeves. They train the AI on that Bill Gates and Socrates thing and it comes back like telling everyone the humors are imbalanced. <laughs> do you reckon do you reckon, uh, do you reckon Starm has gone to ChatGBT to just find synonyms for the word pledge <laughs> <laughs> he's going to give the electorate five quests <laughs> uh, yeah so this is the second subquest about the uh, economy uh, mainly introduced by Rachel Reeves going on the world's most expensive plane ride uh, and then trying to hide her ticket and reposting and then failing and again see, which was incredibly she good she needed a flying ticket if the, if the government would just implement flying mounts <laughs> yeah but then they'd have to redesign the entire country to be based yeah. around that Jamie and then you just can't be having, spending that much uh, they would have to finish slow something like that <laughs> uh actually well this is it this is their way of of reinventing uh the country uh and the basis of this uh redesign is going to be um securonomics that's the uh that's the buzzword Fuck off. <laughs> didn't, we, didn't we hear something similar similar to this in uh, a recent episode yeah we, we just had securitarian politics last securitarian week which said politics, fucking it. nothing yeah well, fortunately for you, I read both the Lapier briefing documents and the Labour Together briefing paper written by Rachel Reeves. So, you know, um, and a wonderful speech. medical paper written on whatever brain disease Rob has. <laughs> Rob will read it too. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> so the basic concept of securonomics is like a, a, a version of uh, Joe Biden's economic policy of the last few years, which... You know, he's that's made him unendingly popular at home. So you know, nothing uh -huh. going wrong there. Um, it basically involves um, what not like reshoring. So like bringing. Rob, like, let me just let me just. Does it involve promising a bunch of stuff that's that you're going to do when you're in power, and then just not doing it? I, mean, I can't tell. <laughs> So one element is, is something called friendshoring, where basically it's like, look, we're not going to necessarily bring the factories back to the UK, but we may put them in a country that's more friendly to us. That's like the we are scared of China uh, paranoia. Friendshoring. Yes. <laughs> we're not going to move the manufacturing back here, but we'll move it somewhere else. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, I've been, I'm sorry. I've been really, really busy. I haven't read the paper. Did they actually call it friendshoring? Yeah, that's what. That's the I'm that's really, the new hotness. <laughs> <laughs> so like what wow. we would do is like we would take our widget factories out of china and we would place them in you know a country a that's country that's more amenable to american imperialism is that the gist no, yes I think pretty that's much friend showing <laughs> Uh, it's it's basically like part of this is just like uh, uh, paranoia about China. That's very much what what we're doing here. Um, and the other part is basically like uh, some money for doing good things for the climate, uh, basically to make sure David is cold enough to keep recording. Um, <laughs> all right. So this is from Rachel Reeves's speech uh, to some Washington oh to some get New York think tank. <laughs> Oh, uh, I love it when a platitude is just going to be embedded within a platitude. It's uh, it's going to be really well, stuff. You, you, I, know, I can you feel see. it already. From the ashes of the old hyper-globalization, Securonomics emerges. 
building the industries oh, that guarantees you. Britain's economic security, <laughs> forging resilience at home while creating new partnerships abroad, and bringing resilience together an act. Yes, <laughs> don't worry, we have. Re we've put all the jobs. We've put all the jobs in another country, so just toughen the fuck up. <laughs> Jamie, you need to get enough resilience so you can get above the crit cap. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, oh, uh, uh, Matt. Here, this this is just a, a succinct explanation of what securonomics is for you. Securonomics means ensuring that a mum and dad in Worthing or Wyoming who are doing everything right no longer feel like they are doing something wrong. But that more than like that, a very targeted uh, policy, if you ask me, targeting a mum and dad, and that's it. In, but in a town, no less, Alastair. This is uh, there's lots of towns in this thing. It's you live in a town. Fascinating. It's fascinating to see Labour coming out with policy proposals that are specifically tailored to individuals. <laughs> we just, uh, we American just individuals, nonetheless. Specifically yeah. tailored to individuals, but written by AI Socrates, I think. <laughs> I... It's more than that. They can start to take advantage of the enormous opportunities in our economies. This is the true promise of Securonomics. Wow. I... <laughs> Uh, frankly, I'm just surprised that there was a definite article in any of that. <laughs> I've read the briefing papers. I won't bore you with like all of it because that would make this a whole episode. But in her words, what, like it, um, this would make a more active state happen, like sort of the reverse of Thatcherism. If Thatcherism was about the state shouldn't be involved in the successes of the free market, this is the rev this is not the reverse of that. But this is sort of like saying like the there Labour should be Party a corp overseeing every part of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this, this is, it, it, it does tally with, I mean, there is some degree of coherence running through it. I mean, Starmer's talked about partnership between the state and business, and it just sounds very much like corporatism. And, uh, you know, really, it's, it's, it's corruption, really. It's more and more yes. money probably going to go to management consultants and, uh, you know, companies like Carillion, um, not them necessarily, but companies like them. And I think that that's kind of what, what's going to end up happening. It's going to be more private private companies into the into the public sector picking up those contracts, and that's dressed up as this kind of public private partnership, which uh, hasn't gone well in the past. Under Labour, you too could live in a company town as long as more money goes <laughs> to Stella Creasy's family. We're all good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it is, uh, Matt, Matt, to your point, this is from one of the, uh, I think this is from the Labour, Labour Together paper that I read. It is also an invitation to a greater partnership between those who share values and interests and between those who want to address the challenges and seize the opportunities of tomorrow, comma, together. So that is like, you are, like you're exactly on the money. What they're, what they're doing is like they're saying to... Carillion and you know it's like there's a reason she's doing this on Wall Street as well right she's saying to BlackRock mm -hmm. to you know the big investment fund she's saying look don't worry about it labor is once again the absolutely rock solid safe place for capital to come and play um, and also like her version of the state will be more active is the state will make more money available to the private mm -hmm. sector as like a um, like a catalyst, like the state's not going to do anything. There will just be more funds for you to like reach in and fill your boots with as long as you make like vague noises that you'll make something nice and preferably green. It's exactly. very funny that they need to do this, like because 
even during the fucking Corbyn era, you had McDonald giving big speeches to like the CBI and that, and yes. it was very much "Don't panic, we're not here to spook you." Like, and it, and it worked for the most part. They were quite like, yeah, we could we could get through whatever that would be. That probably would be terrible. It was only the, yeah. the, the batshit fucking nuts crowds that were like vehemently fucking opposed to the idea of a Corbyn economic policy or a McDonald economic policy. Whereas with this. They, for some reason, feel that they need to go crawling away to BlackRock and be like, we promise we'll be good because like, they've got the same kind of brain worms. Well, I think that they, they, can, they can also then say that that's why we won and that gives them the veneer of legitimacy for pursuing that's this true. agenda. I think that's, that's yeah. what it is. It's like it's creating that context. So if they do win the election because it's fallen into their lap because the Tories have imploded, they can say, well, actually, it was because we, we went crawling to BlackRock. Yeah, That's I mean, so the future, the future yeah. is so good. <laughs> yeah, po- yeah. Basically, entire economic policy around post hoc ergo propter hoc is uh, yeah, great to see. Uh, so yeah, basically, so like what they're saying is um, the UK would just the, the, fundamentally the UK they wouldn't do like st- true state intervention or anything. They would just say, look, like we are going to do Britain, but like we would just simply manage it better. And the first thing they they. Like I said, a lot of this is about insuring capital. So they pretty much, they start off both these briefing papers by saying, we will not touch the central bank independence. Uh, the treasury treasury hive mind is going to stay in place. And by extension between those two things, the, the London city and the trading that goes on there will not be touched. So what I've, I've read is like inside this mission, there are five subquests. Um, I won't go into all of them but the first thing of course is they say uh we've talked about it in some previous episodes is they're providing certainty and stability which they will do by introducing clear fiscal rules with a new enhanced role for the office of budget responsibility which was going to be you know is, is it the obr that produces those graphs that look great yes every year <laughs> or like the, the graphs that are always right <laughs> yeah. the cl- yeah, the graphs that show like the UK economy like going up and like a direct forty-five degree uh, increase, and then it just like the the flat line that that follows a reality. Um, but they will also uh, set up the office for value for money, which I really <sighs> thought they dropped that, you know, like a long while ago. Um, it's a lot about like you know uh, providing catalytic public investment through the green prosperity plan plan to crowd in private sector investment to the industries of the future. And that, oh. as you say, Matt, that's just bribes to, you know, uh, that's that's just bribes to, to private industry so they can get a lot of money. And basically what they want is like British faults, but in every town. It's a very interesting play for, for, for like, it's a play to get capital on side, obviously, but it's an interesting one because obviously the Tories, their natural kind of um, appeal to capital would be to reduce taxes, but they can't do that. so. And they can't do the sort of things perhaps Labour's talking about in such um, uh, blatant terms anyway, because I mean, there'd be ideological opposition to that. So I think, you know, Labour's just basically seized that opportunity and said, we're going to make all of this, all of these funds available. We're going to open everything up. They're talking in no uncertain terms about um, privatising the NHS, really. I think opening that more up to the public, to the private sector. And that's, going to appeal to capital way more, I think. I think actually they've outflanked the Tories from the right to some degree. I think, you know, if, if you don't look at it through, through a normal kind of 
left-right paradigm of low taxes, tax and spend, then I think that actually they're appealing to corporate interests much more than the Conservatives. Yeah, and it also I think it also shores like the, currently the, like the people currently in charge of the Labour Party it shores them up internally as well because like if you are a Labour Party that wants to like shred its left and you know isn't really too keen on being associated with unions in general anymore like this is what you would do like you create a state that does more handouts in more places and then look in the private sector not just, just like by just giving them like some money like the whole PPE thing under the. Uh, under the Tories during COVID, but saying, look, um, we want you to engage in a, in a, you know, we're going to engage in a, in a 10 or a 20 year project to build wind farms off the coast of somewhere or other. Um, and we're going to do that with Carillion and EDF and like a couple of other big corporates. Then like you also give them a motivation to say, look, you see the Tories over there, they're against wind farms because they have gone ideologically insane come the next election cycle you should also stay with us because this project isn't finished and like you should therefore also keep donating to us because you want you know this sort of hand these handouts of of state money uh to, to keep going on the long term you know if the Tories come back in they might actually opposed as i think they are and will remain to like any kind of green industrial policy you know you you can get serious chunks of the of the of the uk business sector involved in this and like sort of lock them in as donors at the same time i think that's right i think that's exactly what's going to happen it's uh it's a it's not just a play as well for in terms of like labor need to plug a massive funding gap too so they need to be doing all of this stuff now they need to be basically going cap in hand to donors otherwise they're not going to be able to fight general election they've lost so much money because of i would simply stop losing court cases (laughs) yeah they've got the court cases they've got the decline in membership the unions aren't exactly pleased with how everything's going, but well, the know, non-scab unions, at least, indeed, mm. yeah. So, I mean, the ones with money. Um, so they need to plug that gap, and uh, obviously, the Labour right, their MPs really want to be able to have somewhere to retire after Parliament too. So, you know, creating a lot of these non-jobs um, through what so-called public public sector private partnerships, I think that will suit them down to the ground. Wind farm ad- advisor for EDF or something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I genuinely think that like they won't do the same thing because I do think they're like in terms of just the pure mechanics, they'll have learned some of their lessons. But like, you are looking at a resurgence of PFIs, basically. Of it, they'll give it like a new hat and put like a funny mustache on it. But that's essentially what you're uh, you're looking for. Uh, and just to make sure yeah. that, that mustache you know, costs two hundred fifty pounds to replace. Absolutely, and just to make sure that you know. There's truly something for everybody in these briefing documents. This is the last bit I'll read out. Uh, this is under the giving working people the skills and opportunities to get to get on, which is one of those awful phrases they've been stuck with for, for the last uh, while. It sounds like almost derived from Theresa May's get on with the job, which was the, uh, wor- the uh, phrase of the day. Oh, Christ. Yeah, it was. Um, he, this is under, under working people the skills and opportunities to get on. We we will create stronger links between our evidence-led, points-based immigration system and our skills bodies. To, mm-hmm. So <sighs> you know, and our skills bodies to make sure we have the skilled workforce we need. So you know, there's going to be something in it for the people who need to you know say have a uh, exploited 
workforce to pick asparagus or strawberries or something like though that's that's gonna stay uh you know i think they might reverse some trends about like getting people in like needed professions like nursing and stuff in like i do think they'll turn that around but that will just be points based and much more like you can come here and work but we will boot you out the moment you don't have a job anymore like i mean a lot of people a lot of people are saying that there's no real distinguishing factor between the tories and labor but it feels to me like there is a pretty good distinguishing factor in that the tories they want to shrink the state they don't they want government to be small but labor they want they want government to be big but only in the specifically in the worst shit you can possibly think of So yeah, yeah, like expand lots of- ex- expand the Home Office, more contracts yes. to Carillion. Yeah, all yeah, of the m- worst m- possible. Border cops, all uh, yeah, you know, ho- hoved off to uh, the private sector. Twenty twenty six, a cop in every home. Yep. So one of the reasons, uh, apart from the joy of his company, that we asked Matt on tonight is the government has just released its new white paper on the state on the future of regulation of gambling in the uk um and so far as i've understood it matt and correct me if i'm wrong and i'm going to put a lot of conditionals in it it seems to address at least some of the serious issues that have occurred since the last regulation in 2005 and seems to be doing or if it were implemented in the way that it says it, sh- it will be would uh, would make some things somewhat better is that about right or or am i being too negative uh, or extre- extremely extremely good summary uh, i think there's yeah obviously a lot of caveats in there but i think that's that's probably right i think look it's taken <clears throat> the call for evidence for this review came out in 2020 december and it's taken a long, long time. We've had a number of different gambling ministers since it started, and there's been a lot of twists and turns. And I mean, I can talk about vested interests. There were people that were in number 10 in the latter days of Boris Johnson's um, tenure who were literally linked to public affairs companies, or, you know, just come, in, come from public affairs companies that were doing work for the gambling industry that were, you know, crossing things out at that late stage. And then it didn't end up getting released because Boris Johnson didn't come back from holiday. So um, we, went, we, we, we went again and uh, there was another changing of the guard and then Sunak came and then Trust came in, obviously, and the whole thing looked like it was going to be shelved. And then and then Sunak, just thankfully, she you know, didn't last very long. And um, Rishi Sunak's team, a lot of the sort of, I'd say, in the context or within the parameters of the Tory party, more sensible people on this stuff returned which was helpful people you could actually work with and um a lot of the stuff came back into the white paper that was um previously crossed out and that's why we got things like a statutory levy which is one percent of the profits going to independent research education and treatment that's going to raise 150 million a year uh we got um just for gambling gambling related uh uh projects and we got the stake limits for online slots, which at the moment they're, they're unlimited and that's where the majority of the profits comes from. We got affordability checks. So people who lose um, £1,000 in a day or £500 in a day if you're under 25 or £2,000 over three months or £1,000 if you're under, 20, under 25 over three months um, will be subject to an affordability check. So there will be gambling companies will have to ask for their income data, proof of income to ensure that they're not gambling beyond their means or getting themselves into debt, more resources for the regulator, better oversight of data, um, single customer view, which will ensure that 
it's possible to track people's losses over different op- across different operators across the regulated sector. Okay. Um, there's just lot, lots of good stuff in there. Uh, my worry is that it will take quite a long time to actually implement. So they're talking about about a year to do the the, the stake limits on online slots with the consultations that will follow, um, which could be. I mean, they've they've put a range of between two pounds a spin and fifteen pounds, but I'm hoping that it will be close to two pounds. Um, and we'll obviously push for that. And then the levy is probably going to take about a year. Um, and then the other stuff like the affordability checks and they're talking about a consumer ombudsman as well, which I didn't mention. Um, that's also, that's going to be a regulator focused consultations and which will probably take between six months and a year. So I'm pretty pleased with how it turned out, to be honest. I mean, it, it could have been worse. Um, lots of things are out of your control with this stuff. It's all about timing and, and thankfully, you know, in the context of this review where we've tried to do so much and try and get so much over the line, most of it's happened. The one thing that hasn't happened is the marketing restrictions that we wanted. But I think that it just puts more pressure on government that if you're going to promote a sector, then you better make sure it's safe. So I think that there's a, you know, there's a bit of leverage there with the fact that they haven't actually taken mm. action on marketing. It does sort of feel like the, the problems in the gambling sector, like the people who've been so horrendously affected by it, like the problem has, had, had gotten, has gotten to a point where it's just you can't ignore it anymore, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, everyone everyone knows someone or knows someone who knows someone, and it's yeah, it's become uh, like a recognised issue. I think there's been definitely a shift in understanding around gambling and and how it can impact someone and their, and particularly around mental health. And um, it's despite it not being a substance, it it's the same, you know, if a, a, a drug can release dopamine in your brain or your brain re- releases the dopamine as a catalyst. Gambling is also a catalyst and, and people understand that now. I think they understand the physiology of it more. Um, the accessibility of some of the gambling products that we have uh, in this country, it, you know, that we've had for very, very many years has been almost a test bed and the rest of the world um, is looking on at what we've, what we've done in response to that particularly the US, which you know, recently had a Supreme Court uh, decision that overturned the ban on online gambling. Um, and states are beginning to legalize it now. And they're looking to us and they're, they're seeing the harms from, from there. And, they're, and they're, they're saying, we don't want to make the same mistakes that Britain has made. And the same mistakes, you know, with, without adequate regulation of something that's particularly addictive. And, and you took some of that online slots, it's about 45% of people that access online slots are either addicted or at risk so they're experiencing some form of gambling harm which is huge like huge proportion of people um who who actually you know access that product and um and the profits are coming from the people that are addicted or at risk so about about 86 percent of the profits online are coming from that five percent who are experiencing gambling problems and they're constantly obviously there's more people constantly falling into that five percent over time and and people in that five percent are going broke because they're, they're addicted so it's a very very destructive business model and you mentioned earlier about tesco and they made 1.5 billion pounds profit and that's tesco um and i think i just did a bit of quick quick maths if you add asda and sainsbury's that's about three billion um yeah the, ga- the gambling and this is food everyone eats and the gambling industry last year made close to 7 billion online gambling alone, Jesus 7 billion Christ. Wow. so that just gives you an idea of the scale of it it's massive 
I mean, Matt, you were, you, were, you were saying that, like, other countries are looking at the UK and, like, learning about basically, like, what not to do. But um, I was uh, uh, back home in the Netherlands a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, 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 had, I, I genuinely didn't know, so I had to, like, ask while I was there. But apparently, like, the Dutch government has, like, legalized or, like, freed up a lot of online gambling. So, like, this is the first time I've been home since, I think, Christmas. And, like, every ad on every bus shelter at least like every second ad and in like shop windows everywhere it was like bet 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 online this online that and it was all you know the dutch version of the premier league footballers fronting it and i was just like i was genuinely shocked that they'd done that because like doing the research for this episode i was just like why would you do this again because like i mean i want to get into the whole like connection certainly with football a little bit as well but like i wanted to ask you as well is the you know is like the profits that have been made and the problems that this has caused in society, like how has it actually come to this point? Because I think it's the, I want to say it's the 2005 Gambling Act that sort of set this whole train in motion. Yeah, I mean, 2005 was a, was a mistake for a number of reasons. And I think that it, it I mean, it was before we knew that gambling was a, a proper addiction, like drugs and alcohol, like before the, the research was there. And, um, and it liberalized gambling as if it was like a harmless leisure activity, but it didn't, it didn't even make provisions to regulate online gambling. And it was, it was you know, before the smartphone was conceived of. And you know, most people, uh, you know, pe- gambling on the internet was really not a thing then either. So, so that it didn't really have the provisions in place to, um, to cater for that. So it wasn't until 2014 that we licensed the gambling commission licensed online gambling. Now the problem with that was everyone who because they did it for the, re- the reason they did it was to to generate revenue um they were losing out on a lot of revenue from the operators that were based offshore so they said if you want to um, access the british market and advertise here you have to have a license and if you have a license then you have to pay a point of consumption tax on your uk profits or your gb profits and then they ended up just licensing everyone so there was very little due diligence in 2014 um that's why we've got about 2000 licensees in britain um, all of which are online gambling, online casino, um, sports betting. And it's been a bit of a free-for-all. And really what other countries have done since, like including the Netherlands, is they've looked at that and they've said, well, actually, we're going to have a higher bar of compliance. It's going to be more difficult to get a license. But because they've, because they've, um, it's taken a while to get, for them to get to that point, there has been uh, you know, a lot of pressure on on. The, the government, the governments, not just of the Netherlands, but of other countries to accelerate the liberalization because of the prevalence of black market gambling and online gambling, because it's so, so easy to access this type of thing online. So it's important that, um, you know, our view is it's better that it's legal and regulated. And if it's regulated and there's consumer protections in place, then, you know, basically the cat's out of the bag now. There's no, there's no putting it back. There's no too many people are gambling too many people are aware that that's an option and it's too easy and too accessible uh on the internet so yeah you it's just about re- restricting and reducing the harm and the accessibility and i think yeah other countries have uh, i think the netherlands is probably the best in europe at, uh, in terms of the the requirements that they have um and it's been very very difficult to get a license but what's been interesting is a lot of the very unscrupulous operators are licensed in curacao and many of those ah. operators are are accessing the Netherlands market illegally, and uh, the Netherlands government is basically saying, "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> so that's quite an interesting dynamic where you've got yeah, 
Um, government doing something about? <laughs> wow, what's that like, Rob? I mean, I don't know. I don't live there. I live. In, I live in a different functional country. Um, but fucking <laughs> <laughs> don't rub it in. <laughs> uh, but to, to to your point, Matt, like the the way you're talking about all of this sounds exactly like what would like the approach that could or should be taken if drugs were actually decriminalized and like uh legalized fully which is not entirely surprising i suppose yeah that's it exactly i think it's better that, that there's availability and i i get caught it's funny because i get called all sorts by the gambling industry which i mentioned earlier about non-jobs from for ex-labor mps there's nothing more um <laughs> exemplary than the betting and gaming council when it comes to that but um uh, you know they they're very uh, keen to call anyone who calls for reform a prohibitionist, but I think that would be a disaster if you banned gambling. Of course, you would create a black market and you would create illegal gambling, but that's just simply not going to happen in Britain, where there's never been the opportunity for an illegal market to get foothold. We've always allowed gambling, we've always allowed online gambling. It's never been banned. Um, we regulated bookmakers. Well, we allowed permitted bookmakers in the 1960s from 1960s onwards. Um, this has been a very, very liberal jurisdiction when it comes to gambling. It's just that we, I don't think we've we've um, regulated it adequately. I mean, one of the things I was I was looking at um, the in terms of what you were talking about with like the the, the betting and gaming council, for example, there was a a wonderful. It's only like a little side note in in um, the latest issue of Private Eye, and you know, given today's stuff about you know. Mr. Octopus Cohen, kind of difficult to talk about Private Eye in that context, but, you know, we have to, you know, get our news from someplace, um, is, uh, like, they had, like, a little sort of numbers thing that last year, uh, Entain, which is the owners of Ladbrokes and Coral, uh, made a pre-tax profit of over 500 million, uh, 500 million pounds, then paid 17 million pounds in total for completely unacceptable exploitation of people who have real addictive problems with gambling, but also managed to spend £45,000 in one month uh, to entertain different MPs at nice sports events to talk about the uh, new government gambling white paper. So, mm. you know, it's, uh, it, it's uh, I think, because I think if I'm right, like the, the, the betting and gaming council, so like the industry lobby body has said, oh, no, this white paper is actually something, like in public they say, oh, this is, this is right and this is what we want. It, uh, is, I think that's the official position, right? Yeah, it's been very interesting because I think that there's a lot of people, what they've done, the Betting and Gaming Council, is they've brought in a lot of public relations people and public relations people who don't really understand gambling, don't really understand the industry. I mean, I think I would say I know more about gambling than all of them put together, but they're PR people. Um, Whether they're good PR people or not is up for debate, obviously. But when you bring in a bunch of PR people and who are interested in reputation management, first and foremost, then don't be surprised if the reputation they want to manage the most is their own personal one. And I think that there's been a lot of manoeuvring from their part of basically trying to convey to the public, to future and prospective employers, and to some of their members uh, that they've scored a big victory with the white paper and you know welcomed it and all that sort of stuff. I mean, they're on the record as having opposed the statutory levy, for example, and now they're saying that it was their idea all along. Um, they've actually lobbied very heavily, heavily against that because they don't want to lose control of, of you know, funding, treatment, and research because it creates an implicit conflict of interest. Um, anyway, they've uh, they've lost that battle, but they want to try to convey and, and project this idea that they've they've won this great victory and 
And in private, you've got the likes of Entain uh, running astroturfing campaigns against uh, some. Oh of yeah, I want to talk a bit about them because that's that's an incredible thing. That you, I, I assume you talk about the players panel. The players panel, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was, uh, like you say, that's very much like an AstroTurf group who, uh, you know, said ostensibly that they were there to represent the interests of the ordinary gambler, which is always like, that's very danger warning stuff if you ever see any other front group that uses that kind of language. And they basically created like mailing lists and sent out like form letters on those mailing lists for, to have people write to their MPs and stuff and urge them to vote against these, like the upcoming uh, reforms. While... They did have like the Entain logo, I think, on their website, but not on their Facebook. But they were very like mum about where the money came uh, from. Although, side note, in terms of like PR firms and who you're getting in bed with, um, this is from the the Guardian. Apparently, uh, one of the firms that was helping Entain uh, put together the you know the grassroots players panel turned out to be uh, Linton Crosby's uh, PR firm. So you know you, yeah. you get so a new that, place. Yeah. That, 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 that was people. Linton Crosby, um, so I think it's Crosby Texter, and Crosby Texter um, was the place that uh, David Canzini worked, and he was the guy in number 10 who I was telling you about in the latter days of Johnson's tenure who was crossing stuff out of the white paper. So, um, well, that, according to Daily Mail reports, anyway. Um, so that was, that's basically how this stuff works. This is how policy is made in this country. It's a bit shambolic. But if you can navigate a way through it and get some actual, you know, get some good things through, then, you know, and you, you manage to somehow play that messy game, um, then then that's good, a good thing. Uh, but really, we should be living in a country which is much more sophisticated than than that, than basically yeah. doing deals and, and trying to, you know, exert political pressure and, and ignoring all of the evidence, which is a source of intense frustration. I, I don't think there are other countries that are quite so... Uh, it, this is it's quite so bad as it is here as you've got this ecosystem yeah. of public affairs public affairs companies ex-labor mps advisors corporate invested interests basically in this big merry-go-round detect dictating and determining government policy and ignoring not just you know groups and pressure groups and whatever who, who are trying to present another another side but just ignoring evidence and and the public interest and just actually just doing what what they want and their clients want. And it's, ju it's just so corrupt. And uh, I think if we observed that, or our, or our great media observed that in other countries, they would call it what it is. Oh, well, you expecting the media to observe anything in this country and make note of something <laughs> bad uh, is a big <laughs> ask, I'm afraid, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, one side though, note though about like how picking the right people and PR firms. There was one bit in the in the Guardian about this uh, before we move on about this players panel that I just thought was incredible. And like, I just wanted to read uh, a little bit from, from the article. Well, the, the initiative, i.e. the players panel, show aims to show gambling's best side. Social media posts by one of the player panel members raised questions about the diligence performed by Entain when vetting people recruited for industry lobbying. The profile of one panel member, a man from Leeds, stated, I'd like to think I was the voice of the normal consumer, but his Facebook page revealed a list of favorite quotes containing strings of racist and homophobic slurs. So, you know, congratulations on picking a good front man for your gambling organization. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Does sound like the voice of the working man, though. <laughs> when we said we wanted a gamer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Gambling so, policy as dictated by the CSGO lobby. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like in, in terms of the things like the real problem issues that this why like because the uh, of the reading that I've done, like some of the things that that seem to be really problematic at the moment are the uh, fixed odds betting terminals and like a lot of the stuff that's that's online gambling and specifically like just gambling from your your smartphones um as well yeah, as these yeah. so, I mean, the, the 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 fixed those betting terminals obviously we we campaign to get that from 100 pounds a spin down to two pounds and that, that sorry just for people who don't gamble can you just explain what a fixed odds betting terminal is yeah no worries uh, so they're machines in betting shops uh, and they're allowed four in each shop and they used to offer roulette uh, at one spin every 20 seconds and you could bet up to a hundred pounds every 20 seconds on these machines. And we, Jesus Christ. We, they were the, they were the single biggest revenue driver by product. So they generated about 2 billion a year. Um, Jesus. and yeah. Uh, and, uh, about 50% of people that use them were either experiencing some form of gambling problem. So they're a very addictive product and yeah, generating huge, huge sums. I think, each terminal on average was generating 50 grand a year profit and that didn't require any, you know, staff really one staff per four machines in in the shop. So you could, the money was getting literally sucked out of local high streets, often very deprived areas. So a disaster on many fronts. Um, and that got reduced to two pounds in 2019 after a very long campaign. And obviously slots online are not restricted in that way because we don't have adequate regulation of online gambling. So, one of the measures that the government said they'll introduce is stake limits, and we're going to push for that to be two pounds as well. So it's, it's parity with with fixed odds betting terminals. And I think you mentioned VIP schemes. Um, there were some regulations that came in around VIP schemes. So in fact, basically, if you used to lose a lot of money online, they would assign you a VIP manager, and this person would be effectively your kind of account manager um, who would contact you and offer you free tickets to concerts and football football matches and uh nights out and all that sort of stuff and keep you happy and keep you betting with them um <laughs> if you weren't gambling what? for a while you would be offered free bets and bonuses and if you were gone for a, a few weeks you'd be you'd get a phone call from your vip manager saying i put a thousand pounds in your account hope to see you soon um you come back and gamble Jesus more Christ. and um and yeah, so it's pretty grim, uh, grim stuff and some pretty harrowing stories. I mean, if you just gam Google uh, gam gambling uh, VIP scheme, uh, Daily Mail or whatever, whatever you want to, uh, maybe not Daily Mail, whatever you want to do, Guardian, um, there's some great stories in there, uh, like sh showing like what exactly they got up to. But there were some regulations that came in that have kind of stemmed that a little bit. Um there's, they've got to do proper rigorous affordability checks now before they add anyone to a VIP scheme. I mean, there was one case, I think, in I think it was on Panorama um, a few years ago, where uh, one of the ladies on on the um, who was a, made a VIP, her mum had just died, and they'd managed to get hold of the call recording through a subject access request, and it was the VIP manager was saying something like, "Oh, I haven't seen you in ages." And she said, yeah, my mum's just died or something like that. And and uh, and she said, oh, well, here's 500 pounds in your account. Hope to see you soon. I mean, it was just really grim. Um, clearly Jesus this person was a dick. What, what if your crack dealer had an account manager for you? 
that's basically basically what it what it is and it, and it just goes to the heart of the whole business model of the industry which is which is that they rely on people losing more than they can afford and getting addicted so this this whole the all of these practices just run completely counter to their to their narrative their own narrative and rhetoric which is we care you know we we are in favor of responsible gambling stay in control take time to think all this stuff that's not what they're doing in practice what they're doing in practice is the opposite of that and and that's that's why it's so i think sinister it's it's just it's it, it it's a it's a horrendous and for anyone who advocates on behalf of it in my view they're they're actually you know the lobbyists for, for me are worse than the industry because the industry is doing what any industry in a, in under capitalism would do and i don't i'm not making excuses for it but it is it is basically making as much profit as possible within the confines of regulation and if that is harming people then regulation is not fit for purpose and you have to change it but the lobbyists for the industry are just they're excusing the inexcusable the defending the indefensible and i think that they are they are infinitely more disgusting to be honest yeah well they would they would just want it to be so you can have the uh you know when the fun stops stop signs in uh the local like yeah. betting shop but like going beyond mm. putting up a couple of posters that's just beyond the pale no i remember like <laughs> yeah. it was i think about 2 years ago and um i went with my mother-in-law who's since passed but we went to she used to like she always liked going to to the bingo because that was usually like in in the old old days that was like part of the working men's clubs and that was just something she just liked doing um so she still went even though like now it obviously had become like this huge like more commercial hall with all the slot machines yeah. and all that stuff as well but she just came in to like just play the bingo and do the one you know do the one card and just play it very simply for a couple quid and you know that's fine by me i have no issue with that but like I remember, I think it was the second time I went to the bathroom. It was only like, as I came out that in like the deepest, darkest corner where you would just like literally pass it without a glance because, you, you you know, it would be in your line of sight. That right there in that little corner was like a little box with like the, the flyer saying, responsible gambling, please. Mm-hmm. And like everything mm-hmm. else was like one giant inducement to just keep going. And it like... You saw so many people, like not with one sheet, but with like twenty and everything, you know, automated on on iPads and stuff. It was just really, really grim. I think the whole responsible gambling thing is a uh, uh, quite an interesting notion or paradigm to unpick because effectively, what you're saying when you advocate for responsible gambling is you're saying that it's if the individual is getting addicted to your products that they are yeah. not responsible and. It's All the while, the, you're, you're designing your products to be addictive and for them to be losing more than they can afford because that's your business model. And yeah. uh, you're basically saying that, that it's, it's, a, it's a lie, really. It's premised on a lie. And it's, and it's, it's actually stigmatizing, a stigmatizing lie, which actually, I think, you know, increases the likelihood that people take their own lives, which is what's happening at the moment. It's that same mindset that runs through anything else where the government's supposed to intervene to help, like... Like fucking, like, I mean, just the first one I can think of, just now, COVID policy. Like, that was so heavily hammered and it's personal responsibility and that is how we will resolve this. Or mm-hmm. climate change, that's personal responsibility. <laughs> Have you considered recycling? It's, Motherfucker, what am I supposed to do about the systems in place <laughs> with a fucking blue bin? What are you talking about? Sign a change.org petition. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's not a surprise that they can't see past that way of thinking and just apply it as the very first thing. Is, uh, have you tried gambling responsibly? Just, it's just <laughs> fucking useless. But that's with these kind of people in charge of the systems, though, like, this is always what it's going to be like. You're always going to be fighting an uphill battle to get anything more than that in place. Otherwise, you'll have some dickhead who used to have a high position in the Labour Party screaming the fuck on Twitter about you. I think the thing that's, that we've been able to leverage or maybe we've benefited from with gambling is gambling reform and how, how that, may be, that may differ from other sectors is, is gambling is, a, is an inherently adversarial relationship between the consumer and, and the provider. And, mm. you know, it's not the logic. If there is a logic to the market, to the free market, then that just doesn't apply to gambling. It does require regulation. Otherwise, you end up with very, very powerful gambling operators exploiting their, their own consumers. They're not trying to look after their customers. It's not like another sector. Um, how how can you say it's adversarial and they'll assign you a bestest friend to ring you <laughs> do you know do you know I, I actually know someone personally who who was in a vip one of these schemes very many years ago and and you know obviously he's in recovery he's been in recovery for a long time and i'm sure he won't mind me, won't mind me saying but this person used to become you know it was a i think it was a form of like grooming almost he saw him as a very very good friend he was house sitting for yeah. him I mean, it was like they used, used to go, used to go away together, and and he was getting a cut of his losses. He was getting twenty percent of everything that he lost. So it was, and he didn't know about it. So I mean, just just horrendous, but proper Wild West stuff. That's that is fucking yeah. insane. The crack dealer is now living in your house. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> It's interesting because, like, it's it's a straight sort of copy, and I think sort of emotionally as well in terms of like how you present it is like that's a model that comes from like the I, I know it still exists now, but it's from like sort of the old school like Las Vegas casinos where people who would literally have like millions or billions and they would come in and like bet big on on hands because they you know like maybe they, whether they should or shouldn't is sort of beside the point at the moment like. But they could more afford it and they would be like, they would get like free rooms and free stuff and, you know, nice dinners uh, paid for. And it's like we've just taken that same model, but like made it into more like sort of quasi personal, quasi telemarketing. And then instead of saying, oh, well, you can have like a thousand dollars to have, you know, a Michelin star dinner, uh, you know, you get 500 quid in your account or you get, you know, I don't know tickets to a football i assume there were tickets to like football matches and stuff in there as well like proper yeah, entertainment yeah. stuff exactly no it's, it's it's that model isn't it of we'll we'll get the whales uh they used to call them the big spenders and yeah. we'll look after them and uh they'll come and but the diff, obviously the difference being vegas is a destination venue people flying in for a few days they might you know lose they might lose more than they can afford but if they're away or they're a vip a genuine vip they'll be hopefully um not it's not going to impact them too much financially um but then they're applying that exactly to online gambling which is ubiquitous everyone can gamble online the you know the, it's not like you have to be a high roller in vegas you have to be gambling hundreds if not thousands uh, if not tens of thousands of spin um to gamble online you have to you know, the, the minimum stake is like a, a pound or something so it's not. It's so so accessible to to those on the lowest incomes, and you're basically applying that same same uh, model to people who clearly, I mean, disproportionately, it's coming from people who can't afford to to lose that money. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty grim. 
uh, I think as well as that, like there's there's other elements that our own research or the research that we've commissioned has highlighted, which is the the data abuse that takes place, so the profiling of customers. So gambling operators will know a huge amount about you, um, even if you don't sign up. If you just go onto the onto the website with cookie drops and everything like that, they'll be able to immediately start profiling you and the things they know about their customers, such as how much they earn, where they live, um, you know, how much the house is worth, uh, how much they would be worth, uh, how much it'd be worth bonusing that customer um, in order to win them back and to still make a profit from them. So if someone hasn't gambled for a long time, they come up with using their algorithms and their profiling, they'll come up with a figure, let's just say 800 pounds. Um, and that figure is how much that player would lose within uh, a certain amount of time. So therefore, if we bonus that person 600 pounds, we'll make a profit out of them. So we'll entice them back with that. Um, and there's all these techniques that they use to try to optimize engagement. So, I mean, it's, it's like other sectors really, but I think it's more pernicious because gambling is addictive and there's an adversarial relationship. So things like uh, push notifications at particular times, when to send a bonus mm. offer, when to send an offer, like, is this guy a, an Arsenal fan? Well, should we put a, give him an offer just before the, the game kicks off? And, you know, we know when he's in the stadium, so we'll send him a push notification then. Like, all of these things is it's basically a big tech company that's designed, to, it's like an extractive vehicle designed to extract as much as it can out of individuals and, and just spit them out and then obviously invest in marketing again. So 1.5 billion out of 6 billion profits goes back into marketing which then tries to you know, replace the people that, that have gone broke. So it just leaves, it's this constant trail of destruction. So uh, you know, again, to use a supermarket analogy, that, that 1.5 billion profit um, that, it's make, that Tesco's is making or 3 billion that those three supermarkets are making, and that's not destroying the customers that they're, that, that, those customers will be coming back. Whereas gambling is very, very different. That customer base that's driving the revenue is constantly changing. Um, it's getting younger. Sorry, I'm going a bit of a rant there, but that's... No, 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 go for it. Like, that's that's uh, why we record this shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what you're here for, Matt. <laughs> so much of this, certainly in the gambling in and industry, also seems to very highly rely, as you say, you know, on, with these VIP schemes and stuff. They rely, as far as I understand it, very much not on, you know, the image that they like to present with, you know, oh, it's just somebody occasionally, you know, throwing in a fiver to have some fun. The, the real profit margins are in that much smaller but much more critical community of people who get addicted or who have real problems with gambling or who really gamble far far beyond their means like that does seem to be exactly exactly it's it and this is that this is the thing this is the mythology around around gambling and betting particularly sports betting is that the revenue's been dr driven by the occasional sports better who might put an accumulator on every now and again or might bet on their team um, or might take advantage of a bonus every now and again, you know, through the apps. Sorry, just for me, what, what the hell's an accumulator? Sorry, a, an accumulator would be, um, so betting on multiple matches. So say if you bet on the result of five matches and getting accumulated odds from those, like... Ah, so okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you'd have to get all five right or whatever, but um, it, it's a bit of fun that some people, you know, I can see why that might be considered a bit of fun if it's low stakes and it's every every so often. But that's the, the problem is once you're on the platform, they're not going to want to, They're gonna, ideally, they're going to want to get you onto the slots or get you onto the casino product or get you to gamble 
on more matches or more frequently. So they're constantly trying to get people to gamble more and those that end up doing so, and that might happen over a period of time or it might happen quickly, um, are the ones that are driving the revenue. So as I say, 86% coming from the 5% who've got experience in gambling harm. So yeah, so it's 95% providing 14% of the revenue, which is, they're, they're the occasional, very infrequent gamblers who might bet once a year on the Grand National or whatever. You know, that, that would still be considered a customer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an industry that's based on, on harm. So when you start to campaign like I have for policies or uh, measures that would reduce harm, it's going to reduce their profits in the short term quite significantly. And the government's estimated that a, a, about 14% of their gross revenues will, will um, you know, lead to a reduction in that potentially in the next year or so, which would be a start. But still, I think, it, I think there's still more work to do. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I wanted to certainly touch on um, as well is uh, the relationship between uh, gambling firms and specifically football. Uh, it's, it was one of the things, again, that, that I really noticed personally last time I was in the UK as well, is that we were just having uh, a drink in Sunday in the pub. And like the moment the matches came on, like you saw so many people on their phones, like placing bets and much more than just like, oh, it's the outcome. But as I understand it, like you can also bet on who gets the first free kick what is the coin toss going to be like all these sort of very quick bets that like quick time bets that can just keep you sort of hooked during the match as well and then so the the relationship between the premier league and um i know that i think it's like six premier league teams that have like front front of shirt advertising from gambling firms as just in general basically uh it's, it's about 10 actually now um so it's about Jesus half, yeah, so. don't, don't worry, Rob. It's actually much worse. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> the slogan of this podcast, yes. <laughs> the really interesting thing about the Ivan Tony case, if anyone's followed that, where he was gambling, well, he was gambling on his own. He was gambling on football, which as a footballer is a big no um, in the rules. And he was gambling on his own team, but he was out on loan at the time. So, but he was also gambling on, on himself to score. Um, which I don't think you can really fix. I mean, he was gambling on his, himself. Um, clearly, he had a gambling addiction, and that was part of the mitigating circumstances around why he only got an eight-month ban, which I, I still felt was very hypocritical because you've got a, an in, uh, a sector here in football which is quite happy to take gambling money, quite happy to allow gambling to and bet, betting companies to offer uh, markets on things that are quite obviously very fixable so things like number of throw-ins or uh, time of first throw or number of corners i mean if you could in theory fix that if you know if you bet on a ridiculous amount of throw-ins in the game and you just kept kicking the ball out like there's ways of actually of actually influencing yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you bet, open the door on. to quite literal match fixing basically Exactly, and, and they've been quite prepared to do that. Now, in France, there are very strict rules about what you can offer bets on, and there's a proper agreement between betting companies and the sports governing body about you know that the, the, they pay a license fee in order to offer bets on the sport, and and we've just not done that. We've just said, well, we'll take the gambling money, but in, in exchange, we'll just promote gambling to children, and that is <laughs> basically what's happened. With it. So I feel like they're... And you know, Ivan Tony was running around the pitch with with Hollywood bets on his shirt, and lots of these companies, you know, I, I, you know, the first time you hear about them is is when they start get um, uh, sponsoring Premier League football teams. So, 
I think that, yeah, I think that football needs to look at itself. I think that there's, I think that it's tried to traduce this to just one bad apple, one one individual, but actually I think it's a structural problem. And I think that, that, you know, there's lots of footballers that are addicted to gambling. And if you've created that environment where gambling is very normalized and, and you've offered the opportunity to bet on things that are easily fixable, you're asking for trouble. It's basically inevitable that that's going to happen. Oh, we've spent all this money on uh, advertising gambling to everyone and, and anyone, and we're just completely surprised when everyone and anyone has started gambling. Outrageous! <laughs> Why have they done this? They should they should be betting responsibly and not on the football matches that they are literally playing in. <laughs> I mean, so so as I understand okay. it, like part of this the 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 deal in the white paper is that they that this would like remove like these ads that you were just talking about at least from like the is it only the front of shirt of players or like everywhere on shirt but like you you would still be able to like uh uh put you know gambling banners on the sides of the stadium on the on the sides of the pitch etc or or is it like a a broader ban on this type of gambling yeah they bottled it really with the the marketing so i think on the other things i was quite pleased with where we got to but I think there's so many vested interests around marketing, not least football, but also the broadcasters and the media. And obviously it's the Department of Culture, Media and Sport that oversees gambling. And I feel like they've, I don't know, shied away from doing anything that's going to impact broadcast broadcaster revenues. For example, ITV, I think they generated about 100 million uh, last year from gambling ads. So it's it's a big, big money. Jesus, for the, 100 for the, fuck broadcast this yeah there's obviously it as well cut um so yeah so i think that's that's where this kind of voluntary agreement came from but that's not going to kick in for another two years where as you say it'll only apply to the front of the shirts but i think we've established the principle now that this is clearly harmful and that's why they're doing this voluntary ban so i'm hoping it's the first domino um if it's not then as i say as i said before like i think there's more pressure on on the government to make sure the industry is safe and well at least safer and not like exploiting people to the extent that it is if you're going to like promote it as much as you're allowing so i uh, just i mean i want to move to uh, wrapping this up because also we've we've been going for a while but before i do that maybe this is just a perception thing or maybe it's just you know sort of the mood that i get in or this podcast tends to get into but there seems to be like a weird thing where the labor party seems more connected with like the gambling lobby than the tories and i always kind of assumed that that like the natural home for this stuff would be the tories you know the what we talked about the own responsibility narrative you know it's just free market etc baby but there does seem to be this like very disturbing internecine relationship between uh, the Labour Party and 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 the gambling uh, uh, lobby. I mean, we already talked yeah. about Michael Duger, but there's there's a lot of like, yeah. I mean, pre- it's even now like money flowing from donations to like people like Rachel Reeves and West Streeting who are all getting money from like either directly from the firms or people very closely associated to. Yeah, I've um, written a bit about this, and uh, I, th- I think I did one for Navarra actually, and. Look, I think um, it's a, prepare to have your perceptions challenged here because uh, Margaret Thatcher was very against gambling and she saw that as, you know, ag- again, like against the logic of the market. And it, it, was, um, it wasn't until that she resigned that the National Lottery came in. She was really against the National Lottery. She thought that was a, would be very bad, have very bad consequences. Um, so there are there is a why? strain of... 
Which, was she against it for good reasons, or she just not the idea, let, not like the idea of pools getting above their state? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think Even it was one in every um, fifteen millions too many. <laughs> I think it was her belief that, uh, that um, I mean, I'm not an expert on Thatcherism, but I think it was a uh, a belief that mar- markets aren't in and of themselves moral, and people need to make good decisions within that framework, within the you know within that. Framework free market framework and, and gambling is not a good decision and government shouldn't encourage it. That's I broadly think that's what it was. Wealth should be earned, etc. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. that kind of Protestantism, exactly. And I think um yeah, and I think the Labour Party, by uh by contrast, I think that the issue with Labour is it's full of middle management kind of ex professional class MPs who aren't really working class at all, but um, are kind of, I think through their own class prejudice, are almost ventriloquizing the working class, but in a really bad way. And I think that they're just, Mm. I think the gambling lobby, that's really fertile ground for them because they're basically saying, hey, your constituents do all this stuff. Why would you want to do anything to clamp down on it? And they're just falling for it because they, they are not from that culture. They're not from that background. So they, that's basically yeah. what happens. They fall into this, um, into this space, and and then become their biggest defenders. Part of me thinks that the only reason that you don't get the Hilson football tickets because you're a VIP type thing is because the ex Labour MPs that went to work in the industry thought it was really really bad that these people hadn't had to suffer through being a Labour MP to get these kind of treats. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing um, the the extent of the revolving door and obviously it was a, it was a new labor government that, that that introduced the 2005 gambling act and i mean what the the, the until recently the mp for sedgefield uh, who took tony blair's place uh, when he resigned was formerly a coral lobbyist so you can i mean it's just a, it's always been a revolving door it's always been that way you know there are a number of ex mps who are working at the betting and gaming council now so yeah, super interesting in that in that regard. But it's I mean the Labour left has obviously been great on this stuff and has always been allies. And obviously when Jeremy was leader, we were able to get Labour policy in a good place. And lots of the lots of the policies that um, were advocated for during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, gambling reform policies, ended up making it into the terms of reference of the call for evidence for the Gambling Act review. So that's something, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, at least some work went to a good point, yeah. There's a very simple logic to it, though, because uh, those uh, those betting shops with all the fixed-odd betting terminals, you know where those have to be, right? Towns. That's where they go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the sweet siren song of uh, of Lisa and Andy. Uh, I get that. Um, it... I think we'll we'll uh, we'll start wrapping up here. So, uh, mm-hmm. of course, before we do plugs and things, uh, Matt, is there any, like, sort of final thoughts or specifically like this white paper's out now and it's going to be making its way through like the whole parliamentary process of course if it gets done before there's a general election etc etc but is there anything like people who've listened to this or people who maybe have like who listen to this have personal experiences with all this what is there anything that like they could do to sort of get this thing across the line or even improve it more maybe yeah if you head to cleanupgambling.com and you put your email address in there i will um, send the consultations and how to respond um, and do that in a very easy, accessible format when they are released. There's going to be quite a number of consultations. 
to implement the, the recommendations in the white paper. And um, if you are experiencing gambling problems and you want to uh, do something about it, then head to talkbanstop.com and you can get Gamban, my blocking software for free through talkbanstop.com and also uh, sign up to Gamstop, and, which is a self-exclusion register. And there's free help and support available um, either through GAMCare or through the National, Gam National Health Service, which have got dedicated gambling addiction clinics now, which is great. So yeah, uh, and also you can speak to me or direct message me on Twitter if you like. All right. Well, uh, with all that uh, said and done, uh, shall we? Uh, I don't know, David. Do we want to do our plugs after all that, or shall we for? <laughs> uh, I just, just very quickly. Yeah. Um, Patreon.com forward slash PraxisCast for bonus episodes. Twitch.tv forward slash PraxisCast for the streams, Wednesdays and Thursdays, and any other time that James might have something on. Obviously, that might be a little bit delayed at the moment with the motherboard exploding. So, wait out on that. Um, and uh, yeah, you can get merch as well at praxiscast.tml.com. And yeah, thanks very much, Matt, for coming on. Um, always a pleasure to have you. And we'll hopefully see you again soon. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. That went really quick. So I must have enjoyed it. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I will say is like b b before we leave is like I know this has been more of a sort of substantive more heavy going episode. Um, if you need any more inducement to like join our Patreon, the latest Patreon bonus is about um, turning whales into <laughs> whales into cold hard cash, and that's just us <laughs> laughing our heads off for like an hour and a half. Whales with an H. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's even dumber than it sounds. <laughs> yes, it's uh, way more dull. Fucking hell! Yeah, so yeah, enjoy that. That's up on the that's up on the feed. So yeah, um, join us and join that. Um, join us and enjoy that even. And yeah, we'll catch you all next week for a cultural committee episode, possibly the last one ever. Um, we'll see. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> see ya. Bye. Bye. Interesting.